Hi, I'm Jason Stockwell. Welcome to Inside the Hive, a show about people in robotics. So Inside the Hive focuses on three things, tech, stories, and people. This week, our head of content, Neil Martin, spoke to Mark Cordbury. Mark is incubation manager at BRL and Launchbase, which is part of the University of the West of England. As incubation manager, Mark chooses the right startups for the system and pulls them through from start to finish. Demand for startups is really high. He uses his experience to judge whether or not a company will fit the incubation program. And he acts as a consultant. Having previously founded small businesses, his advice is essential to whether or not small businesses will succeed. So this podcast dives straight in. So just sit back and enjoy. My take on all of this is more that um, I think the robotics industry has been stuck in one place for the last 30 years, very much aimed at large corporates, you know, putting in ranks and ranks and ranks of robots into car plants and things like that. And they've done a brilliant job. You know, when I I graduated in 1987, is that quickly? Um, <laughs> my final year project was working with a sort of an eight foot high Kuka robot with Rolls Royce, right. developing a deburring cell for them. You know, so so almost when I first came here two year, eighteen months ago, and I walked into a room and I saw a big orange Kuka, I thought, has anything changed in the <laughs> last thirty years? Um, so uh, what I'm trying to do with the startup side of things, because there's always this pressure: all oh, robots are taking jobs. We're trying to look at it from the other side. We're trying to say. Where are there new business opportunities that wouldn't yeah. exist without robot or automation? I t- and I tend to regard robots, the word robotics and automation as almost interchangeable, yeah. to be honest. Um, and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to take startups that traditionally would have to employ a warehouse full of 30, 40, 50 people to achieve sensible business numbers and saying, right, if we can make use of the... Um, this whole industry 4.0 thing, I think, came out of the what I call the smartphone revolution. Yeah, it's a smartphone revolution, and, and building screens and Wi-Fi chips and all these things in their billions has brought the cost of technology right down. So, so it's now possible to build something for um, you know five to ten thousand pounds, which commercially is available, but might be um, over a hundred thousand yeah. pounds. Now, if you're prepared to live with the limitations of something that you're building that might not be as flexible, but it just does the one job you need to do very well, you can potentially use a relatively small investment to create a business opportunity um, for, a, for a new startup. Yeah. So, so that's, that's where I come from. Yeah. And so um, within here, we have, we have a lot of IoT play, both commercial and industrial. We have um, uh, some very interesting new sensor technology, which is at the heart of a lot of Industry 4.0 type um, ideas. We have a couple of startups that are now literally developing their own robots or automation systems. Um, And uh, And do these usually come from students? They are students doing this, or do you get a lot of outsiders, what's the proportion? It's a, it's a mixture of both, to be honest. Um, both, yeah. the, the, the four new companies that have joined the hardware incubator have all not been students. Mm. Well, no, one's a student, he's, but he, he's two years postdoc, so right. he's sort yeah. of um, uh, a mature student at Hill. Uh, and, um, but in the we have two incubators here uh, for for early stage companies and in the other incubator yeah it's very much 
recent graduate approach where we've got, we, we're getting people coming in who are almost regarding the technology as being accessible in a way that maybe you and I would have thought, well, we're not trained into doing that. Yeah. You know, there's, it's, I think the whole maker space and the whole sort of Arduino and Raspberry Pi has has yes. demystified. I mean, they, they, they don't pretend to be programmers and they wouldn't be able to work on inverse kinematic mechanisms and all those sorts of things, but they've still got that um, uh, ability to see that it, that it is accessible. Do you take stakes in these startups? Mm -hmm. At the moment, we don't. You said no. Yeah. Why, why is that? Isn't that an obvious thing to do, in a way, from a university point of view? The university has... Th it's, it has... Um, it's three E's are its priorities. Obviously, education, enterprise, and employability. Mm. And the reason the university has invested in its startup infrastructure and or, or its enterprise support infrastructure um, is to develop um, local employment, the right sorts of jobs to provide career paths for students to give students access to high-tech businesses to make them more employable and things. So there's no plans to do? Um, there's, there are always discussions I yeah. mean, and you know, we, we, there are still challenges. You know, yeah. How do you take um, research grade IP and make commercialise it? And often you find there is a uh, research IP gets to a point where it's not ready to be commercialised but it needs one final push of yeah. some form of near market development and so we are talking about this idea of how can you get companies through that gap and I think if the university is able to do that those are the sorts of businesses it probably would take equity positions in. And what about a professor? If a professor do they get the chance to head up these companies or if you're working here you've developed a project with your students for two years it makes a great company what would this, the university say to them that can they go and do that? The university has, in my experience, has been very relaxed about letting students take their own projects out and not taking a stake in them. Where the university has made a big investment in a research group over a large number of years, and there is the idea of a commercialisation or a spin-out company from that, that is where the, the commercial team within the university would probably negotiate either some form of license deal or right, okay. equity position. Okay. But I, I can only think of you know a couple of examples where that's happened. But a professor, if he left to join a company, would that be frowned upon or? No, I mean, I mean, what I find is where I've got I've got startups with professors yeah. in, in, on board, um, and again, the university is quite relaxed about that. I yeah. mean, I, my view is. There is a whole move within the academic movement to say that very few people who go on to do higher degrees ever become professors. Right, okay. Yeah. And so there is this idea of how do we help a researcher who is maybe a, a number yeah. one or number two behind a professor um, who might have spent three, five, six years in research. Uh, those sorts of people might be the ideal targets to actually get involved in a spin-out mm. because um, maybe they realise the research work is, or the academic world's not for them, um, or they realise the chance of progressing in the academic world is quite difficult mm. for some, mm. um, and they can be the people who can get very, very close to a piece of IP and mm. therefore mm. Are, are a natural. So there are some schemes that 
um, the university participate in in trying to get those sorts of people into sort of a an enterprise mindset because yeah, it's quite a move from being a, a master's or a, a PhD into business isn't it it's yeah yeah um, know, the, the, the CTO role is expected of them really but the CEO role is is quite difficult for some yeah I mean it's, I mean, it's what I did 30 years ago yeah. when I, I was a th- in my third year of my PhD and I was walking across campus and someone said to me would you like to set up a company we need some software written and I said I'm happy to start a company with you but only if I'm writing software for one year because yeah. I hate writing software <laughs> <laughs> and the, you know that so I, I, I sort of use my PhD to launch yeah. a company sort of thing um, but were you quite happy running that company as well were you yeah um I suppose the, um, that company I started off very much as the CTO role, and it mm. was it was later businesses that I sort of stepped up to the CEO role. Uh, it's one of the areas I'm. I, I say to a lot of when we're doing inductions and things like that, I say to a lot of the first and second years or new masters students that if you've got an, an entrepreneurial bone in your body, or you've got that sort of itch that you want to scratch for goodness sake, get outside of your faculty and start speaking to people in other faculties. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. Don't just sit within the engineering no, tea room. No. Go and speak to the business school. Go and speak yeah. to whatever. Um, and I, I think one area I, I think we could do more is um, this idea of collision meetings where you bring together people from different backgrounds, different disciplines. Um, there might, for example, we're, we're one of the largest trainers of nurses in the country. All right, yeah. And if you're doing a degree in nursing, you're probably not going to be following an entrepreneurial career no. in the short term because you've got that sort of vocational focus. But these are the people who maybe understand where problems are in the marketplace. Mm. They may be understanding if only we had a device to do this, it would save time, reduce suffering. Yeah. So for health tech yeah. people, yeah. they're ideal. To and speak so to, yeah. if you can, if you're interested mm. in that area of technology, which you know, there's a lot of IoT stuff going on in that space and things like that. Um, uh, breaking out of you know sitting around at a coffee table with three like-minded engineers and convincing yourself you know everything, mm. go and speak to those people and um, and we have a really you know brand new business school, the Bristol Business School, based here now, um, you know which does all sorts of different business courses from postgraduate MBAs through business management through to team entrepreneur courses and again instinctively I feel that we need to be better at getting those sorts of people yeah. with those sorts of mindsets involved with technical people. and um, So do you, get, do you get those guys coming over here trawling for talent in terms of science, or has that ever happened? Um, not so much trawling for talent. I mean, we, get, we, get, we do get people from the business background who sort of said, I want to be an entrepreneur and I'm looking for an idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, you know, the university does have an undergraduate enterprise structure for students where they you know, they, they try to create some of these sort of uh, collision events and training events um, almost as an extracurricular activity as these people move through the university. And in terms of um, the university itself, where does it stand in, in against other universities in, in what it's trying to do with this? You, you, you seem quite modern and progressive. I would, I mean, I, 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 came, I joined the university just over 18 months ago, very much brought in from the outside. Yeah. You know, um, my background was one of as an entrepreneur. Um, and what attracted me to the university was this idea that enterprise was important across the whole curriculum. And I think they now have got the 
every course in this university has some element of enterprise. Um, obviously that varies depending upon the course. It might be more mindset in some course. It might be more sort of, uh, you know, what, more traditional entrepreneurship in, in other courses. Um, and this idea that the university never seemed to hide from its background as a former polytechnic. It sort of said, you know, we have a lot of our students, we recruit locally, mm. and a lot of our st- students go back to sort of, I think the figure I heard was 50% of our students come from 50 miles away or something right. like that. Okay. And therefore, the university has this idea that it, it has a bigger stake in its own local ec- economy than maybe an international research university might have where it's bringing people in from all over the world and distributing them all over the yeah. world. And so the university does have this idea of wanting to be a, an anchor institution in the sort of the southwest economy and you know, help drive um, uh, you know, new business technologies, help support existing businesses um, in that area. Um, but you think that sort of polyvocational attitude helps? Yeah, I, th- I think th- I think they that was almost in their DNA, yeah, yeah. rather than thinking rather than pure um, academia. Yeah, you know, we're we're you know, research can be you know, you can do very much near market research, or you can do stuff you know in in obscure particle physics, you know, yeah. which is is sort of. 40, 50 years away from market, if ever, you know, or it's just there for pure knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I think this idea of trying to work with business and uh, uh, I think having the business school based here as well has sort of given that business focus as well. So yeah. um, uh, So you've been here 18 months. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you move on from here? What are you working on in terms of the future, your future approach? And is it just doing what you're doing now? Or? No, my... I mean, I think we have a, a growing enterprise agenda at the moment. Mm. Um, about a year ago, we launched the University Enterprise Zone, which is three incubators and two support services. So those three incubators cover um, the BRL, the British Robotics Lab, our hardware incubator. So that's for you know product-based mm. technology. We have an incubator called Launch Space, which is aimed at recent graduates so any university in the UK if you've graduated in the last three years will provide you a year's free business support and accommodation here and then we've got future space which is our growth incubator which is our our commercial offering but it has those advantages that you can once you've say raised finance from one of our other incubators you can um, move across there and you've got that flexible office you know you can go from four staff in one quarter Mm. to eight staff in the next quarter to 12 staff in the 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 third quarter um as opposed to i remember back in the day having to i think in one year we signed five commercial leases and as we were growing (laughs) quite fast and you know trying to align all the break points and you know they were all 25 year leases and we knew we weren't going to be there for more than two or three years (laughs) and it was so so sort of grow on and scale up office provision has gotten much much better and, and future space is our version of that right uh, and then we've got as i said two two um uh service offerings which are where our organizations one is um has come out of the bristol robotics lab which is their the rift the robotics innovation facility and then we've got uh, a very similar business model the health tech hub yeah and both of those are are packed full of clever engineers, scientists, technicians, 
um, lots of equipment, whether it's robotic arms in the RIF or DNA sequences yeah. and electron microscopes <coughs> in Health Tech Hub, and they can offer SMEs access to that technology to do proof of concept type work um, using kit and um, expertise that those SMEs would never be able to afford. You know, they run typically a three-month project, which is free of charge. Right. Um, and the idea being that if you if you are you may not even have uh, someone who understands robotics in a mm. if, if you're mm. a jam factory, yeah. you, you make pots of jam, but you, you don't have a robotics no. engineer. You, you might struggle to keep the IT system up and running yeah. on, on a daily basis. Um, so coming to somewhere like this, you can um, almost try before you buy, you know, get a business case yeah. put together so you can go and speak to the, the, the boss and say, look, we've proven that if we spent you know, fifteen thousand pounds on this arm and five thousand pounds on this end effector, we can drive you know this productivity or whatever. Um, and so that both of them are sort of designed to help upskill the mm. sort of the SME economy in the southwest. And I noticed uh, yesterday uh, one of the banks was here. It was the day before. So obviously the banks are quite aware of what you're doing. Yeah, we have the ones I'm aware of, and I'm not aware of everything the university <laughs> does. We have good relationships with um, NatWest. Mm. We have very good relationships with Santander. Um, uh, and you know we, the relationship's different actually, but um, you know with one of the banks, they're very keen to be bringing in either their regional managers mm. or important SMEs to sort of say, this is. You know, we're helping you understand mm. whether it's industry 4.0 or automation. Um, the other bank is very keen on providing financial support for early stage entrepreneurs. So right. we're running a pilot this year where we're creating um, uh, a number of uh, entrepreneur ambassadorships for Santander where we're able to give early stage startups a grant to almost carry on living like a student for for the first six months of your business but it means that you can focus wholly on your business you don't have to worry about delivery or you know yes. where you're going to live or whatever you know you, you, you've you've got Eating, yeah. you've got the equivalent of a full student grant coming in for another yeah. six months so you can just come into launch space and um act like you're a funded startup and what what our job is in those environments is to help take those companies to the next stage of, of you know, raising funds to, to enable their business. So how do you measure success in terms of the people in the incubator now, the firms there, the, the fledgling firms? When do you say you've had a good year, good two years? Is it X amount have gone out to be companies or? In the startup world, I mean, you always get this sort of uh, ratio, you know, you take 10 companies one or two are going to be super successful. Yeah, yeah. Well, one, one or two will just about wash their yeah. face and bump along, yeah. and five or six will yeah. um, go off and do other things yeah. and, and you know not not achieve the dream. Um, and you know we have a very similar ratio. You know we get we get sort of new companies joining us, and uh, but we, we you do end up getting this sort of um, it's probably more than forty about forty percent of them really do engage, and right. I, I, and to me. Uh, success is enabling those companies to have a life beyond the free incubation support we give them. We do provide free desks and access to internet and electricity and all that sort of thing, but the real benefit that we provide is we have um, myself and there's another incubation manager um, and 
our job is to be a virtual member of those teams. Yeah, giving and, advice. And, and giving advice and... Hand-holding. You know, introducing them to fundraisers, yeah. um, helping them with, you know... We, we spend a lot of time sitting down with companies. I've got one at the moment, that, and that they've got an absolutely brilliant technical concept, and they are dyed-in-the-wool, time-served, 15, 20-year-plus engineers. And my ba- my original background, I got a degree in engineering, but so I, I can see the I can't understand everything they're doing, yeah. but I can see the depth and the the quality of what they're doing. But it's trying to help them translate that into an environment where they're going to be sitting in front of maybe a a thirty year old VC who's probably more likely from a management consulting or an accountancy background, um, and therefore you've got to sort of translate yes. te- technological bit. <laughs> brilliance into sort of market opportunity and a story that, that you can engage those VCs with and um, uh, raise the funds you need to make the brilliant idea a, re- a reality. That's quite hard work. Yeah, that's that's my day job, I yeah. would say. And, yeah. uh, and to me, it's really interesting because mm. I I am working, if I had to say, the, the companies I'm working most closely with at the moment, we have got graphene-based sensors, an electric... Um, air t- vertical takeoff air taxi, um, right. um, a robotic packaging machine for hyper personalization for the supply of tampons and sanitary products. I've got an AI handwriting company. We've just sort of uh, just left and moved on to uh, independent life, uh, a company that's trying to sort of recreate uh, an online rental system for the sort of the, the generation rent. And it's a very. Um, and, uh, they sound quite practical. Yeah. They don't sound. No, no. There, we, we, you know, we do get our fair share of companies that you think I'm not sure how this is going yeah, to happen. Sort of but fit, um, yeah. the one, the ones that sort of um, come up the top, you know, they are all, you know, they're they're all technology based either in the in the sort of the hardware, software, AI sense of uh, mm. technology, um, and they all. I mean, what we're trying to do is help companies that have. There's nothing wrong with having a comp. Uh, someone who wants to set up a company, they want to be a consultant. They want to be a sort of a sole practitioner, and they can. They, there's nothing wrong with that as a business um, trajectory, and you can run a very successful, you know, uh, interesting career mm. acting like that. Um, but from the university's point of view, it's all about this being able to recruit um, staff, bring interns in, you know. If a lot of the companies we have here bring in students to work with students in their sort of final year. Um, um, sometimes it's just two or three hours a week. Sometimes it's as an intern uh, where they're getting paid. Um, again, some of the banks run very attractive mm. schemes to support businesses bringing interns in. So it's it's all trying to create that ecosystem where um, almost on a weekly basis I will take a startup from one area. Mm. And sit them down with another startup who might be a year ahead of them, and say, "Speak to these guys. <coughs> they know about digital retargeting of ads on Facebook. Speak to these guys. They know about mm. um, packaging and postage for for mass distribution. Speak to these guys. They know about how to design PCBs. And you know yeah. what what we try to engender is you know we say to them, the more you engage, the more you'll get out of it, and the more you'll be able to give back when it's your time sort of thing. So it's more of a collegiate atmosphere than 
possibly competitive, which can be in the tech sector? It's, I, the reason I wouldn't say these people, are, it, they're not competitive with each other no. because there are very few competitive companies in here. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to think of two companies that are actually competitive. Right. You know, we have we have multiple IoT companies, but one is talking about working in um, the uh, housing sector, you know, the supported housing sector, housing associations, council housing associations. We have another one that's working in um, uh, the health area, trying to help mm. aged people stay in their homes and live independent lives. Um, uh, sort of. So they're both using maybe a common technology, <coughs> but they're in completely different parts of the market. Okay, and how long do they generally get here? So you say you're a startup, you've got a great idea, you're, you're in this lovely incubative environment. How long before you would ask them to? We have we have different models for different incubators. Right. So launch space is um, nominally a year, but we're flexible enough that. You know, we ha if, for example, at the end of 12 months someone is halfway through a funding mm. round, we will allow them to stay a couple yeah. of months to achieve their yeah. funding round, uh, particularly if they're people who've contributed to the incubator, maybe they're UE graduates and therefore it's a good UE yeah. story. Yeah. So, you know, so we, we can be flexible. Yeah. Yeah. In the hardware incubator, we sort of recognise that there's that phrase, hardware is hard. Um, and um, so what we have there is, again, they have one year free within the incubator um, and then they go on to a, a rent escalator which is a very small rent escalator mm. sort of you know a few tens of 50 pound a month or something mm. like that increasing it gives them a sense of cost yeah and, and, and they, yeah. they stay on a rest rent escalator for up to two years right so they could be in our hardware incubator for three years okay and part of the reason for the rent escalator is it should be saying if you can't afford this small bit of investment you're probably not going in the right direction anyway yeah. and it should be helping prepare you to be moving across the building yeah. into future space okay. and into a, a more commercial relationship with the landlord and do you have do you, have you had situations where you've had to sort of drag them screaming from the incubator or do they sort of realise themselves possibly it's not going to work or they can't afford the rent? And We haven't lost people because of the rent. Yeah. I think we lose people because an idea runs out of steam yeah. or... And they see it, it themselves, yeah, don't they? Really? Um, uh, and, or funding runs out of steam. Mm. Uh, and obviously that's the time, you know, we get very involved. At, you know, those, those could be some of the more pressurised end of the, of, of the discussions where, you know, very... I say to people, you know, I think we don't always give entrepreneurs enough respect. Mm. You know, it's it's a very hard life in the early days, and it's a mm. life, uh, it's a path that isn't, there's no guarantee, you know, you become no. a doctor, you can almost guarantee that keep your nose clean, you might be a consultant or a senior yeah. GP one day. Um, you know, if you become a lawyer, you you're going to have a, a, a successful career path. Yeah, it's path. a career path. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the career path for most entrepreneurs is one that isn't necessarily successful at your first attempt. Mm. Um, and yet they're the people who are going to be building the businesses that are going to be paying the taxes that contribute to society. And they are often the businesses at the leading edge of you know when yeah. government ministers talk about you know. Whether it's in the sixties and the white heater technology, or you know we're gonna, we want to be leading with the green revolution, um, it's entrepreneurs doing that more often than not than big business because they can they can move faster than big business. Yeah. And um, you, you've only got to look at the air mobility space. 
Um, yes, there are in initiatives by Airbus and people like that, but you know, an awful lot of independent companies, because they can um, think fast and respond and act fast, are, are making a lot of headway in that space. There's a good point about entrepreneurs because um, many years ago in Silicon Valley in the in the States and they said there they prefer to hire people which have failed mm. one or two times because they understand the hardship they've gone through and they learn from that failure. But they said the problem with the UK is they don't like failure. You fail once and you're you have this uh, reputation in for failure. I think yeah, I think is that starting to change now? That was twenty years ago. No. But is that starting to change now? Or? I I would say that. Mm, in some respects, my career has represented has sort of been has occurred during that change process. Yeah. I mean, I tell people that you know because often these startup guys all say to tell me your background, and I say you know I've done four startups and two were successful, one failed and one fizzled out. You know, yeah. so um, and you know each one of those startups was funded very differently. So that's why I've got maybe some relevant experience. I think sometimes the worst sort of advice can come from uh, an entrepreneur who um, who succeeded after their first venture. Yes. I mean, I'm a I'm a great I mean, I'm, I've I've benefited from it as, as well. But I'm a great believer that the luck pays as much of a mm. role in being successful as anything else. Obviously, you've got to be in the right place at the right time um, to be lucky. And the old phrase, you know, the the harder I work, the luckier I get, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but um, one of my company, my, the very first company I set up was sold to a UK publishing business, and we developed a very good relationship with one of their technical editors, who invited us up to the, to the NEC to when publishers used to have big sort of gin yes. palace type stands. Good old days. And yeah, <laughs> and you know you couldn't get all the fun happened inside, but you couldn't get in yeah. unless you were invited in. <laughs> and we were just we went up on the day that we were free. And it just happened to be the day that the chairman did his, he did one, you know, of the four, three or four day show, he would always do his one day magisterial visit right. sort of thing. And this guy called him over and said, oh, I want to introduce you to these guys. Um, and we had a sort of a, a polite 10 minute conversation. Didn't hear from him for six months. And then the phone rang. He said, oh, would you come up to our office? And let's talk about and let's talk about business. Yeah. And three months later, they bought us. We got lucky. Had we gone on the day yes. before, or the day after, <laughs> it was that um, close. Yeah. So, so it is that there is yeah. that um, element of luck, um, uh, but it does make for a very uncertain. Mm. I mean, I've, I've said for years, I, I never plan more than two or three years out. It's always been, yeah. you know, that's the only yeah. way you can work as an entrepreneur. But that one that failed for you gave you that perspective. You've seen what it's like to fail, I suppose. So yeah, I mean, therefore, I, your advice to these yeah. guys is broader. And sometimes failure is not in your hands either. No. We were doing a large project with a government organisation, and we were about to sign a quarter of a million pound contract when the government pulled the project. Mm. So you know, we suffered, but so did the forty-five people in that department. Yeah. Got yeah. you know, um, had all their work taken off them. So that was just. One bad timing things, yeah. and bad luck, you know, yeah. so you get bad luck and good luck. But um, uh, Okay, so talking about government, I imagine here is a popular place for ministers to come. We have our fair share. <laughs> and be photographed in certain yeah, angles. Yeah. and Something about a robot and a minister wanting to stand yes. next to a robot. It's uh, uh, Maybe they don't answer back like people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, this could be programmed. So you're popular from that point of view. So the government does relate to institutions like this. 
But I've heard in industry that government is not that supportive when it comes to it, of robotics and putting systems in. And the way that the way society is going to change and the way the workforce is going to change. These figures, um, you, you know as a sort of a journalist, sometimes it's always hard to get. Mm. Sometimes a stats you work on are, are 18 mm. months old or something like that. I saw some stats recently which sort of tried to track the number of robotic arms installed per, I, I can't remember what it was, per 10,000 uh, workers in the country. And it ranked it, you know, and I think South Korea was the most automated yeah. country. Yeah, um, top of the list, aren't they? And uh, when you looked at that league table, the UK was the only G7 country that was below average. Yeah. We were actually it's not on the table, I don't think. We were it? 22nd. It it's, it's off, yeah, I think the table <laughs> went up to the top 20 and you had to scroll down. That's and right. we, we, you had to look at the spreadsheet or whatever. We were 22nd. Um, you've probably seen the table. Um, and so I, I think there is a reality gap between what is said. Mm. Uh, I, I remember once I flew into Vienna Airport to go to a meeting in Bratislava. This was probably about eight years ago. At the time, whoever was in government, and this, this isn't a political point, whoever was in government was making great play that we are the green energy capital of Europe. And I just remember sitting in a taxi for the, I don't know, it must be 40 or 50 miles drive from Vienna into Bratislava. And I think for the whole of that 40 miles, we were driving through a wind turbine, uh, a wind <laughs> yes. farm um, that w went, you know, not only did it stretch the length of the road we were on, but it just went into the distance. And I was thinking, no, we're not. You know, yes. um, <laughs> Britain is kidding itself. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I, I don't know, I, I actually think it's a real opportunity for Britain because I think Britain probably does have a very high proportion of SMEs. Yeah. And if you can get SMEs to realise that automation is for them, and I think that, to me, that's what makes me interested in this whole robotics and automation space. It's um, I, I, a very small company I came across recently who actually decided to, to, to throw in the towel. And it was, a, it was an, art, an artisan-type business. This woman made um, condiments, uh, chutneys, and all those yeah. sorts of things. And... Uh, and she said, I can sell everything I make. I enjoy making it. I get pleasure out of making it. But because I've become successful now, I only make it for two days a week. Hmm. Then I spend three days a week putting the bloody stuff into jars. <laughs> that's right. And that's the bit, you know, sterilizing jars. Yeah. And you suddenly think, well, that, that's actually quite a simple. Yeah. You, know, you get a cobot arm and you'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. Well, and if you can't afford a cobot arm, put in, you know, put a simple XY and, yeah. you know, dollop it in from a peristaltic pump or something. Um, and you think there's an opportunity where if that person knew that she could have spent maybe five or six thousand pounds, a relatively small sum of money, and she could have then been making for four days a week and only packing for one day a week, mm. that might have changed her business and made her business more successful and enabled her to recruit someone to do that job mm. and work alongside her. And I think that's where, you know, there's a, we had a company in here yesterday, yesterday or the day before, um, that bought a six-axis robot arm in. Right. And to my knowledge, it's the first, we, one of our companies in the incubator has actually bought one, um, but it's uh, the first robotic six-axis arm under £5,000 in the marketplace. Oh, yeah. um, and it's a British company. Now, if ever you'd have thought, who's going to be the first country yeah. to bring a six-axis robotic arm? Um, and okay. Be Denmark. Yeah, well, Denmark or China, <laughs> probably. Right, yeah. um, 
And um, you looked at this robot arm and, you know, okay, some of the academics looked at it and said, oh, yeah, it's got a bit of this and a bit of that. And you say, but you're missing the point. This isn't about uh, precision path accuracy. This is about going from A to B, back to A to B, right. and each time landing within half a millimetre of where it was yeah. before. Yeah. That's what an SME needs. Yeah. It needs a robot, robotic arm that's good enough. Yeah, good point, good enough. Yeah. And I think sometimes... Um, the robotic industry because product managers all sort of sit down right spec a bit like iPhones and things you know all oh, competitors have got a 12 megapixel yeah. camera we'll have a 14 yes. megapixel camera Just, we'll have an yeah. 18 megapixel camera yeah. we'll have two lenses three lenses four lenses um, and you know you get sort of, and they they lose track of or sight of actually what some parts of the market need and I think what people like um, Jacques are doing that is so interesting for us is um, if I'm a large robotic arm manufacturer and I'm looking to shift you know my, my budget for the UK is two three four thousand arms a year going to the large um, corporate end of the spectrum whether it's uh, aerospace or food mm. manufacturing you know I know that I can put time and effort into those sorts of clients and they probably would be ordering arms you know, in batches of 10, 15, 20 or something like mm. that. And so it justifies having an expensive sales force mm. on the road. Mm. But when you then go into a, uh, this lady who does jams, yes. yeah. um, it's an expensive sell um, just for one arm. And so there is a, a real problem in the marketplace. And so one of the things we're trying to, we've got a, I think we've got a new uh, consultancy wanting to start within the incubator and they're looking at it from a, we don't want to talk about robotic arms. Um, their, their philosophy is a robotic company, uh, no, a company doesn't care about robots mm. in the same way that you don't care about has my iPad got an ARM processor or an Intel yeah. processor? You just want it to answer email, yeah, type up documents, yeah. and browse yeah. the web or whatever. Um, and so their approach is we want to come at it from a solutions point of view. So we want to come up with a, a low-cost, probably something that might even be rented out to companies who mm. can't afford the capital outlay, um, a box-erecting device. Mm. You know, so it's... It's it, again. If you're Amazon and, and you're sending out gazillion parcels a day, you will have very automated systems for getting the boxes sorted out, or you could have if you chose to. But what happens if you're a, a company sending out 500 parcels a day? Does someone have to literally, you know, erect every part box yeah, manually yeah. and um, yeah. lose the will to live every day while they've got 500 <laughs> boxes a day to do that? Or can you have a small um, device in the corner that is designed for batch manufacture that costs you as a business, I don't know, 500 pounds a month to rent or something like that. But what it does is it just uses automation. So I know that I've got a, a stack of 500 built boxes ready for yeah. sending out the rest of my, my products. Um, uh, so, okay, so getting back to just the, the government, what, what could they do more in your view to help encourage robotics into SMEs? I mean, the figures are, are, are strikingly bad in terms of manufacture for the country. It's got to do something. I mean, we're slightly Brexit obsessed at the moment, but once Brexit is over, whichever way it's over, what would you say to the new ministers coming in? There'll be a new batch of ministers soon. What would you say that, come on guys, what, what, 
again, what can we a, do? a completely non-political point. Non-political, it's not political. No, no, but I, I think, unfortunately, I think Brexit is going to be with us for the next three, four, five years mm. anyway. So whichever route we take, mm. you're either going to be sort of rebuilding relationships with the rest of the world or renegotiating mm. relationships with what you've got. And so I think, I, 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 I don't even think if it was a... If, if this was a game of rounders, we haven't even got to the first base no. yet. Then there, there are three other bases to get round, unfortunately. Um, but I think. But in the I, ideal I world, I I'll tell yeah. you what I think. I have this feeling that um, we're all we don't like admitting what we don't understand. Mm. A, a huge network manufacturer in America. 15 years ago, spent a lot of money putting in an early intranet. It was one of the sort of early examples of corporate intranets and everyone was talking about it. And they were amazed at how much it was used in the first two weeks or something. Hmm. And then it was not used for, for very much at all, which is everyone predicted that intranets weren't going to be very popular in the early days, but they had this huge initial yeah. spike. And when they actually done did some digging, they realized it was everyone in their own company searching on all the technical terms they were always too scared to admit to their partners they didn't know what the what does VoIP mean what does this you know <laughs> um, and all those things that people were too embarrassed to admit they didn't know and I, I think we need to be better at showcasing what actually works um, I think if you could actually get um, rather than giving out grant after grant after grant which mm. obviously grants have their place but I find that it's not always the most needy companies get are qualified for the grants no, you know so no. um and if you don't know what you don't know you don't know whether you qualify for a grant or you could use a grant anyway i think if you had if i think if we were better at showcasing what good looks like um so you could go into a so if i know that i'm an sme involved in you know mail order packaging and i could see a device erecting boxes and I suddenly realised oh what I don't need £35,000 for that I always thought I needed £35,000 for that therefore I've never yeah, yeah. but you're saying I can get it for sort of four or £500 a month or, or whatever the figures are um, I think that's where it, if, if people could see um, and I think the problem with the robotic industry as a whole is it tends to be about companies turning up to big showcase events t for two or three days a year big arms waving cars in mm. the air and it doesn't it, it looks great, mm. it's great corporate PR for yeah. the company, but it doesn't translate to the need of a guy sitting in a small industrial unit yeah. in North Bristol employing 15 people, worrying about, you know, how, how do I keep the lights on or meet my payroll or whatever mm. small business people worry about. So in a way, do you think we, we need a champion in government then to someone who understands the sector and can start championing the cause and showcasing what robotics can do? Either that or we need the government to acknowledge that there is almost a productivity crisis in the country. Which we all know about at the sharp end. Yeah, but and they need to be able to say there is a, a place that we're investing in that shows the way for all the, you know, it could be regional, it, you know, you, it might be unex unreasonable to expect someone from Sunderland to come down to Bristol to see it, mm. so, you know, it could, it could be a regional mm. network, but um, uh, this idea of, you know, what does what does good look like, and, you know, how, mm. do, how do you actually increase productivity, um, and I think 
maybe they've got to get better at um, sponsoring. Uh, you know, they, they spend enough money on communicating other things. You know, why not communicate case studies for business? And uh, I, I think that an awful lot of information that comes out of government for business just goes straight. To, you know, there's a certain amount of government communication that's just you know the red tape they have to deal yeah, with, yeah. and they almost get. <clears throat> There is very little positive, I would say, information that comes out of government. And it may not be government's job to be providing that, no. but maybe their job is to be enabling organisations. And I think, and this is where I think universities um, have a role to play. You know, they, they, this is where universities can almost give back to the local economies of, um, uh, you know, we've got lots of clever people here, um, we work with lots of companies, and we can help show how businesses can get better and do better things. Okay, on a similar theme, um, I heard a trade association chairman say the problem with the adoption of robotics in industry is really down to, to the mindset and the culture in that industry in the UK is run by bean counters, accountants, not engineers. Would you agree with that sort of statement? So the inference being that the accountants want short-term returns for investors and shareholders. Engineers tend to look more for the long-term future. I actually think that may be an unfair characterization. Mm. I think that might be true at the corporate end of the spectrum, yeah. where it, it's all about stock markets, quarterly statements, and things like that. Where you know, and the stock markets are demanding year-on-year -year growth and all mm. that sort of thing. I'm not sure that's true in the SME space, where most of the businesses are owner-managed. Yeah. To the and you know, and and. Without wanting to trivialise it, it's almost in a good year, the owners of those businesses will have a holiday. In a bad year, they won't have a holiday, and they take the pain. And so, I'm not sure they're driven by bean counters in the same right. way. I think that tends to be the bigger end the of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I'm also I'm not entirely sure that engineers are a particular solution to a problem either, mm. um, because I actually think as soon as someone uses the term engineer. I almost want to say, what sort of engineer? Yeah, you know, because an engineer who understands control systems or mechatronics or structural engineering or thermodynamics or aeronautics or manufacturing, the, the, I, I think the problem with robotics is robotics isn't a discipline. No, I think pr robotics is a, a cross-discipline applied application area. So you know, if you look at a good robotic solution, it will have some. It, it might have some vision systems. It might have some mechanical motion arms, kinematic type control systems. It might have some AI sitting in the deciding mm, what to do mm. next. It's got some clever sensors that you know where they could be vision or chemical or, or whatever. And so many things come together with robotics. Um, I think that has traditionally made it quite hard to promote. And I think. Um, I think one of the strengths of the Bristol Robotics Lab is it is a very horizontal space. You know, they have almost 20 or 30 different research areas. So we have an opportunity to sort of cross-pollinate one area into another area, um, as opposed to a, a research lab that is very vertically mm. integrated. Um, so coming back to your question, I, th I think it's about having people, whether an engineer, um, some of our best startups who are using robotics are run by people who are not engineers. Right. And it's run by people who can see an opportunity. 
And um, I think the more people, I think if we can turn the industry from a capital investment industry into a, a cost industry, so in, instead of, if you take a, a, whatever your baseline figure is of, you know, um, two two thousand, three thousand, four thousand pounds a month for the cost of employing someone. Obviously, it depends on the mm. job they're doing and the type of industry. But if you can demonstrate that um, a, a, a relatively small fraction of that on a monthly basis, so you know, come back to our box building machine. You know, a box building machine that costs you five hundred pounds a month. If that means that someone who was spending, t- you know, two and a half hours every day building five hundred boxes. And I've come across people who mm. said we build two thousand boxes a day right. manually, um, yes. and that's someone doing that. That someone costs whether it's two thousand or three thousand pounds a month. Yeah. If you can bring in a solution that says yeah. you're going to remove this absolutely tedious job from someone and let them do something maybe more productive or more fulfilling, and it's going to cost you less to do it anyway. I think if you can start showing people that. Um, I think that's where people will say, oh, I didn't realise robotics or automation applied to me as well. But that's the big fear. That's what I don't think people understand is that they just fear that their their job will be taken. Mm. And that's part of the education process, surely, is to make sure they understand they can do other things mm. once that job well, is... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we have this debate with one of the startups because people sort of very quickly quip to them, oh, you're the people destroying jobs. Yes. And they say, no, no, we're starting something that doesn't exist and... So we're just employing less people to do it. Mm. If we weren't here, that you know, we, we're we're, we're no creating jobs. jobs you know, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I would also, I mean, again, I don't really have any facts, to, but my instinct is that the jobs where there is the highest churn in a business are some of the most unfulfilling, thankless jobs in a mm. business, and. Every time someone, you know, if you've got a, if you've got five people in a warehouse, and on average they only stay for two years, mm. you know that's four people a year or whatever you're having mm. to replace. No, um, that's uh, two 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 people a year you're having to replace. Mm. Um, that's a cost to the core business because you've got to advertise and interview, or you you then bring people on who aren't trained and they've got to get up to speed. So you've got that whole sort of hidden cost of that um, and so the potential is if you bring in a, mach- a machine to do a job you may not be losing jobs if people are leaving anyway mm. you're just not replacing mm. jobs with jobs that people don't like um, I suppose if you're looking in a perfect world is if companies become more productive I mean we, we all I, it was a few years ago was, wasn't it that the comp- country sort of crossed that Rubicon where um, more than half the company, mm. or more than half the people were employed by, effectively the state, you know, mm. um, and half were employed by private. Yeah. Um, the more the private side of the economy can generate revenue, mm. the more you can afford to create the jobs people might want, whether or not that's in sports centres or helping elderly people or, or or whatever. It, it changes. It it. If you can get the if you can get the half of the economy driving productively, mm. it will pay for the other half of the yeah, com- economy yeah. that makes everyone else's lives more pre- more um, pleasurable, acceptable, yeah. or whatever. I mean, some theories are that that to when you lose your job, you've got to be retrained mm. to do another job or up a level. Mm. And uh, countries like Singapore, 
they're giving out grants to people at the moment to go and study $345 to go and study to make sure you're up to that next level. That's why I was talking about the government. Do you think the government should start something like that where they're proactively thinking about employees? Yeah, I, and I can't remember the actual figures here, but we had a we had a, a chairman of a, one of the big consulting firms come to talk, mm. talk to the university. And I think he said that their own model shows that, and uh, I'd need to check this figure, but I think he said something like, it was either seven million jobs were at risk through the sort of mm. automation process, you know, the automation of the economy. Yeah. But he then said that the same model says 7.4 million jobs will be created. Yes. In, so if you look back 25 years, you didn't have lots of people sitting behind screens doing digital no. marketing. No. That's a whole sector that's been created yeah. by a technology yeah. change. I think the challenge, the challenge the economy has, and this is maybe where government can help, is if 7 million people are at risk, but there's an opportunity for 7.4, what you want to make sure is that those seven million can become part of the seven point four and not be left behind. Yeah, and that I think that's that's the, the challenge. That's the challenge, and I mean I think there are two two groups of people who can help that. I think I think there is uh, a vested self interest in the uh, company side of the equation. You know, companies need to take more responsibility for training their staff. Um, you know. We've gone through a period of when I first went into business companies as a sponsored undergraduate. I was I was sharing the you know my workspace with lots of apprentices you know who joined and did it on a sixteen to twenty one year old mm. apprentice and their view was and they were really good at their jobs but their their view was we will stay with this company for the next yeah. thirty years or, yeah for their lives right yeah, yeah, yeah. Or for the bulk of their career yeah. Um, whatever's happened that's that relationship has been broken mm. now and we're expected to have i don't know what you know many different yeah. uh, careers so it almost it became a dissentive for companies to invest in people because they that potentially the accountant said we're going to keep them for five years how much we what how much are we prepared to invest in them and i think so i think at one side of the equation companies have got to get better at um uh, training their staff um I remember we, we one of our software companies, uh, we were sitting there and I was looking up out the open plan office and we had sort of 15 people writing code and eight people in support roles, mm. everything from secretarial mm. to sales and things. And we suddenly said, right, let's put on, let's put in place a training program to teach these eight people how to write a Hello World computer program. Right. Just so they understand what those, you know, what they almost saw, saw them the other side of the screen is where the propeller heads sit, you know. Um, but if by getting them to understand more, they were able to sell better, empathise better, mm. understand better. And I, I think companies have got to be better at doing that. And um, I think, I mean, I say, I say this to lots of people, that entrepreneurism is not a qualification, it's a mindset. And it has never been easier to learn new skills. Mm. I would say, you know, something like YouTube, if you go to the nice parts of YouTube, <laughs> there is, you know, if, if you want to learn about brushless DC motors, yes. if you want to learn about uh, server motors, you want to learn about how to, you know, photogrammetry or whatever, mm. there are people who have spent hours producing effectively training resources. You can teach yourself to code off YouTube. You can, t you know, so it's, 
And I think where the education system's got to get better is not necessarily putting through everyone through the same sort of um, uh, educational mangle machine. Um, uh, it's about getting people to realise that it doesn't... Uh, I have my big bugbear with the education system, and this is probably the most political I will get, <laughs> <laughs> is I... And I speak as someone who did maths, physics, chemistry, further maths at A-level, and then a degree in mechanical engineering, and then three years postgraduate research in engineering. Okay, And then I've run four software companies. Mm. I am Mr. STEM, if you look at it yes. like, like that. <laughs> and I abhor this forcing people into STEM subjects. Yeah. Um, I had a, a daughter, my daughter was told when she was doing her a-level electives if you don't do a science you will never get a good job in this country um, and I turn around and say well okay let's look at the head of the BBC did he do science no let's look at all those MPs well 95% of them didn't do science no. you know we've got people who in America I can't you know running major fortune 500 tech companies who majored in philosophy at, yes. at their, for their degrees and if you've got the right mindset, it yeah. doesn't matter what you do. No. It's, about, it's about the ability to learn. I've seen people who've done degrees in history go on three-month coding courses and become a really competent coding people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so forcing people to do subjects they don't like just kills off the will to learn. And I think the worst outcome for our education system is when people leave it at whether it's 16, 18 or 21 and their first reaction is, oh, great, no more learning. <laughs> and I, I, I say to people that if you, at the age of 21, don't think that you're just starting your learning career, you are in a bad place. And that, to me, is what schools and universities should be producing, people who want to carry on learning through the rest of their career. Because 15 years ago, none of us knew we were going to have these smartphones that were going to no, be more powerful no. than computers on your desks um, and the app economy and all the sort of the fact that, you know, none of us knew that no. was 15 years no. ago. So someone graduating today at 21, you know, we don't know what's no. going to be in 36, no 50, no. you know. No. Um, and so the only way you can... I remember seeing a chart about the, the various industrial revolutions and the, the bits I can remember was what the first industrial revolution was steam. The second industrial revolution was um, automation and Henry mm. Ford. And the gap between those two was about a, the 150 years or something like that. And then the next industrial revolution was the internet and connectivity. And the gap was about 70 years. Mm. And then the next industrial revolution 4.0 <coughs> is about 35 years after that and it's almost as though these seismic changes in yeah. in industrial technology are coming along and the time constant is almost halving between each step so it, you know um, we invested in our first servers on the internet in 1995 um, and there were a hundred thousand servers on the internet. Well, there were less than a hundred thousand servers on the internet when we put our first server on the internet. Yeah, you know, we're only now yes. twenty-five years down the line from it, and um, you know, you can have a hundred thousand virtual servers in one data center. Yes. Um, and it but so so, so so who knows what's going to be here yeah. in twenty years' time? Yeah. Um, and 
the job of, you know, what I would say probably one of the most thankless jobs in the world is being a futurologist because you're almost guaranteed <laughs> right. to be wrong. But uh, wrong. <laughs> it's really hard to predict what's yeah. coming. But the one thing you can predict is there will be change coming down the line. And so if, if people can't, whether it's self-educate, um, I, think, I think corporates have a responsibility as well. That I, I think the HR departments and corporates are so driven by box ticking in application forms that they're in danger of missing out on good candidates because because you haven't come up the traditional path I mm. was a, I was a software engineer at Microsoft and then I went into it and suddenly you, you know no I wasn't that I was working in a restaurant I did this then mm. I self-taught yeah. but suddenly you you you, yeah. you you get rejected it so I, I think the whole economy needs to realize that it's not about the 15 year track record sometimes it's about what you've learned to do and continue learning to do. And in terms of yourself, do you um, do you miss being outside an industry? Do you do you look at some of these startups and think, I wish I could I could take, grab that and yeah. run with it? <laughs> I, I do something. Yeah, so I mean, I I haven't precluded ever doing another startup. I mean, I I saw a very nice um, stat recently that the average CEOs at a startup is sort of forty seven to fifty three or something like that, which. Uh, um, yeah, if the right opportunity came along, yeah. but um, it's it's I, I I mean I'll be honest with you at the moment it is really satisfying mm. almost launching a number I, f- yeah. I feel there are a number of opportunities I work with where I feel like I'm helping launch yeah. new businesses Mental. and uh, yeah. uh, the. I might. I, I've sort of jokingly said to one or two of them that when you're super successful, you know, I'll drive your car in my retirement. <laughs> also, remember me. Remember me. Yeah. <laughs> Can you remember when you saw your first robot? Yeah, 1986. 1986. In the flesh, so to speak. In the flesh. What impact did it have upon you? Well, I, I was. Um, I was just entering my final year at Bath University. And they had a very small, out of about 150 students, they took about 16 to do a, a two-man design specialisation in their final year, which was done in conjunction with an industrial sponsor. And I had a friend who was at Rolls-Royce who had um, done a much better job than I did of sort of networking with his sponsoring company. And he had come up with this idea that we get engine cases for jet engines out of the casting process and uh, machining process and then one a man has to literally stand in front of it for two days with a hand yeah. hand powered dremel type tool and deburr everything right. and they pose a question we've got a robot and um can you design a a, a tool changing and a, a a cell that this robot could use for deburring mm. these cases so um, I think it was towards the middle of the, my final year that I firm, finally went down to Filton and saw the robot, um, and then so that that was that was the first uh, proper robot I think I saw. And what about uh, fictional robot? If I said across culture, what's your favourite fictional robot? I struggle with that question <laughs> because I my when I when whether I'm I, I, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, for example, or yeah. Um, or, you know, but you know, you look at something whether it's something in Iron Man or something in Star Wars. My instant response is as someone they said, "That's not possible. That's not possible." Yeah. And I tend to get more irritated. <laughs> I, I would probably yeah. say, 
although I don't think I ever watched the program, the thing that I, I, I that you think I wish that was true is something like the flying car and the Jetsons. Right. You yeah. know, that to me yeah. that is. Um, uh, you know, we 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 are all stuck on the ground at the moment and in ever congest more congested um, environments. Um, I also have a problem with the, uh, the sort of the anthropomorphization of robots. You know, this right. idea that robots have to have faces and arms. And, yeah. um, I, I I think that's almost coming at the pro uh, problems from the wrong direction. It's coming. On, let's try and recreate a person, yeah. as opposed to let's try and solve a problem. Yeah. And uh, and you know, we've got those. I'm sure you've seen the pepper robots and yeah. things like that. You know, when I've been at events where we've taken a pepper robot to you get it's very much a marmite people either love it or hate yeah. it you know they're either creeped out by it or they yes. think wow you know um and uh so you know to me a robot doesn't have to look like anything it just or and this is why i asked what do, you know how do we define robotics mm. and i've still never really had a proper definition for no. robotics um and i think in some respects, robotics is a, is it's suffering from sort of overhyping what robots. Mm. You know, from from the sixties. You know, there were sort of public films saying, "Oh, we're going to have things running around." Yeah. I mean, we can't even have Hoover's in the house. The, the, the Hoover carpet's properly at the moment without yeah. running over your cat or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, and and so the. I think that there's been too much hype, mm. and uh, and reality is far yeah, removed from that, yeah. isn't it? And uh, I worry, you know, I was at a conference recently where people were telling, you know, how difficult it was to design a robot that could provide a glass of water for an elderly person in, in a, a care home, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to sit in a self-driving car then <laughs> if it can't get a glass of water out, <laughs> you know. Um, and you know, I think we're in a hype cycle at the moment. You know, the self-driving car is another example of that. You know, no one has been able, in the same way that no one can answer the question, who do you negotiate with it for, for your new deal, Mr. Hunt or Mr. Uh, Johnson? No one can answer the question, how are, how are autonomous vehicles going to survive in a mixed economy mm. where um, someone was telling me recently they watched a documentary where the, the, someone was in what, it was either the Google car or the Uber car or whatever, yeah. in a, in wherever, Atlanta or something like that. And they were trying to get off a freeway and they missed their junction seven times. Right. Because they were their car was effectively bullied off the road yeah, by it's cars. Too cautious, yeah. It was it was oh someone's cut me up, I just missed it. <laughs> and they said they missed seven junctions before they got <laughs> off the freeway and um, uh, so again we haven't answered that question. I've, I've no doubt that there is technology that can yeah. safely provide for yeah. self-driving cars, but how does it account for the sort of the, the bag of blood and bones sitting in the other cars? But do you want a self-driving car? I mean, I personally do. I'd love to be able to, to call up a Google car and it'd take me to the airport, for example. I think what changed it for me was there was... Um, I, what, what I find most attractive about self-driving cars is how they will transform our cities for reasons that I don't mm. think enough people talk about. If you have a self-driving car, and whether or not I own it or whether or not I'm, I'm renting it, but let, let, let's assume that, mm. that I still own it because we change slowly. But the ability to be dropped off and then say to my car, bye-bye, you can go to some charging park on the edge of town, mm. 
I'm not going to have a street full of mm. two rows of parked yeah. cars. I'm going to bring some trees back into yeah. the street. Yeah. I'm going to almost like these street. You go to a London suburb. They were designed yeah. in the 20s when cars didn't exist. No, no. And, and if you compare a photograph of then and now, now it's just car, 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 yeah, car, yeah. car, with this narrow space down the middle yeah. with speed up, speed up, speed up. Yeah. And, and I think this idea of being able to say to a car, thanks for dropping me home, go away to the you know, out of town mm-hmm. uh, charging slots, um, probably see you at seven o'clock in the yeah, morning unless, I, unless yeah. I press the button and the car appears and something in this car shed park is sort of plugging the cars in, taking p- spare power out of it and feeding the grid. Yeah. And then when the electricity is cheap at night, charging yeah. them. And, and I think the, I don't think we've got our heads around how much society could mm. change. And, that, and that's probably why I, uh, I, would, I would be a big fan of electric mm. cars. And I, I almost think the government ultimately, if, it, if they believe that it is greener because of electric, that, um, that it will only work if they introduce some form of scrappage scheme where they engineer mm. an economic transfer from one type of transport to another type of transport. Thanks to Neil and Mark for making this podcast happen. I've taken a lot from it, so I really hope you have as well. Inside the Hive is recorded at Bristol Robotics Lab, so we know Mark pretty well. And Inside the Hive is made by a company called BotHive. BotHive help introduce small businesses to robots, so if you're a small business and you're looking for a robot, get over to bothive.com. If you're a robotics company and you want to use BotHive to publish your content, email subscription at bot-hive.com. That's hyphen as in the symbol, not the word. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook to keep up to date with everything that's going on. Our handle for all four is at WeAreBotHive. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.